This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we have our first returning guest, Dr. Ellen Vora, MD, who is a board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. And she's the author of the new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. Dr. Vora received her BA from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University. Today, we speak about the root causes of mental health and some interventions that we can take to prevent anxiety. We talk about the nuance of psychiatric medications and the holistic approach that she takes to mental health. Dr. Vora talks about the mind-body connection and how the mind is always informing physical health and how our physical health from things like diet, toxicants, or sleep can affect our mental health. We talk about so much more, and this was such a wonderful conversation. We really appreciate Dr. Vora coming back onto the podcast. And now, onto our conversation. Hi, Dr. Vora. Welcome back to the podcast. We're super excited to chat with you again. We've loved following your story and your your progress on Instagram and now really excited about your new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. So we're super excited to dive into this with you today. Hey guys, I'm so happy to be back on the podcast and I'm just thrilled to watch you guys progress through your medical training and head on into the ways you're going to carry out this contribution to the field. I'm so excited for you both. Thank you. Well, first, let's start off for our listeners um, talking about anxiety. Can you just explain what it is and how our mind and our bodies and our environments are all connected? Honestly, I can't explain what it is <laughs> at this point. I've just given up on every time I do a different tap dance. I mean, it, it shows up differently for all of us. And there are certainly themes to anxiety, like fear and uncertainty and you know dif- discomfort with uncertainty, themes around control. But for some one person, it might show up as generalized anxiety disorder where they're constantly in a state of worry, um, have difficulty relaxing, have difficulty shutting down their mind. And someone else really might come back to a relatively calm baseline that gets interrupted by panic attacks out of the blue. Um, and another person might really have social anxiety where it's in um, social interactions or public speaking and things like that, where they really go into a high alert state. So it's different in all of us, but it's also, we're at a point now in the two plus years of the pandemic where in certain ways, it's a very normal reaction to a collective trauma that we're all living through to world events to just living in this world that's just so terribly troubled. Yeah. um, I was reading through your book, which is very good, by the way. (laughs) Um, I highly recommend it. And thank you for writing it. I think it's it's a really important book that needs to be out there. You cited a study by the Kaiser Family Foundation that showed the COVID pandemic skyrocketed symptoms of anxiety, depression by 
270%. So along with COVID, what do you think are some of the factors that are contributing to this mental health um, epidemic? Yeah, I mean, COVID is certainly a factor, everything about that, where we had sort of this existential fear and uncertainty around the health of our families and, um, you know, whether we were putting other people in danger, all these questions were coming up in our minds. But it also created conditions that contributed to our anxiety in other ways as well. Like for people that started working from home, the blurring of boundaries between work and life and the sort of tainting of leisure for people that were working outside of the home, the fear of exposure. And, and I think that there's also been a shift away from keeping ourselves intact through community and connection to really being isolated and relying predominantly on social media for our connection, which you know, has its merits as all the three of us can attest. Um, but then it also really has its downfall and its shortcomings where it can leave us in compare and despair or just leave us kind of bleary eyed down a rabbit hole. And it's an opportunity cost. We don't feel the same drive to connect in person, which I do think scratches the itch of that fundamental need for community in a slightly more effective way. You um, mentioned fear a couple of times, and then you also brought in social media. I know that you talk a little bit about this in your book, but how do you think that social media has contributed to anxiety and depression because there's fear mongering constantly with the news? And then what do you recommend like us and our patients to do when faced with this anxiety caused by social media? Yes, Amanda, this is such an important conversation to be having. So we're living in the attention economy where our attention is the commodity that very smart companies are competing for. And they've done their homework. They know neuroscience, they know behavioral psychology, and they know that if they prey on our fear response or instill uncertainty or doubt or controversy, will rubberneck. The algorithm favors this. So we give over an increasingly large share of our attention. They get more clicks, more attention share, more ad revenue. They're the big winners, but our mental health is often the collateral damage. And so what I advise my patients to do is to at least have our eyes wide open as we navigate the information landscape recognizing that fear is a tool right now to help people make money. And, um, and it doesn't mean hide under a rock. It doesn't mean don't be a part of the conversation or don't be aware. We definitely need to be a part of the conversation and be aware of what's not right in the world. But in the words of the brilliant Brittany Pecknett Cunningham, we need rested warriors. If we're going to be helpful and show up in service to make a difference, we can't be all jacked up and exhausted. And so we need to navigate the information landscape consciously, deciding who gets to tell us what and in what way and how often. And sometimes it means putting the phone down so that we can protect our peace. Putting our phones down. <laughs> I feel like we have to do that all the time. Like I purposely will leave mine in the car just to get like a few moments of peace. And like, I'm not even that busy on my phone. It's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah. What, what are your um, boundaries for social media use? Yeah. I mean, I have so many, but it probably on some level helps that I'm a boomer. And so like I lived in a world that was pre-cell phone and, you know, I, 
I'm sort of at that interface. I was just young enough that I'm semi-native on technological devices, but just old enough that I have very much conscious memory of life before technology and, or, you know, these kind of modern technologies. And so I actually don't really like being on the phone. I get addicted. I go down rabbit holes like anybody else, but um, I'm, it's sort of the same thing that helped me break up with my processed food addiction that I had so long ago. And there was a certain point where I started to recognize that these foods that, you know, once I ate one Dorito, my palate got addicted to the flavor crystals and I needed to keep consuming them. But once I started to recognize like, wait a second, I feel like shit when I eat this, I feel icky. I feel a headache. My digestion shuts down. And I just started to associate the bad feelings with this food. And then I would look at it and it wasn't willpower anymore. I just didn't want it. And I wanted to nourish myself with food that was naturally delicious, like the bounty of nature. And so that's what did it for me with processed food. And with the phone, it's something similar. I've just had the learned experience enough times of when I go down that rabbit hole, I feel icky afterward. My eyes hurt, my head hurts. And I've learned over and over again that those 45 minutes of scrolling that we're all tempted to do in the evening, I've started to realize it squanders my energy and my well-being the entire next day. And once that dawned on me, I was like, it isn't worth it. And so now I can put my phone aside. Parameters that I put in place, I definitely do not bring my phone into the bedroom. My charger is in the living room. It's not in the bedroom. I don't keep my phone on the bedside table at night. Um, and then if I'm at dinner, if I'm around my daughter, I really try to have it out of arm's reach so that there's no temptation to check. Mm. I even can't fall asleep when I've been scrolling and it's not just the blue light. <laughs> it makes me feel bad and it's hard for it to fall asleep, which is another mm. factor that leads into mental health. It just shows yeah. how strong the addiction really is. It's like people cannot stop scrolling even when you know you feel like shit yeah. because and of this it. Is it's exactly right. And, and that's an addiction, right? Like it, it, you can't stop it. It causes pain. And um, there's really three ways that the phone is impacting sleep negatively. And one is, as you mentioned, the blue light. And you might be wearing blue blocking glasses. You might have like a night shift mode or whatever. But at the end of the day, like that blue light suppresses our melatonin and disrupts our circadian rhythm. And then there's the fact that there are no natural stopping points. So we scroll endlessly. No one in the history of the world has ever said, oh, look, I got to the end of TikTok. Let me put my phone to the side and go to bed at this wholesome hour. But then there's also the fact that it seeds our unconscious with a lot of really uneasy material. And while that might be useful so that we can be informed during the day, that's not how we want to surround ourselves right before bed because sleep really is trusting and surrendering and we have to feel safe. And the events of the world do not make us feel safe. And I think that there's something happening in the modern human brain where we didn't evolve to be aware of all that is wrong in the world in every pocket at all times. We evolved being aware of the goings on of our community of maybe 100, maybe 120 people. And now we're aware of everything wrong in the world in every pocket of the world. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that we're not wired for that. So our brains don't have a mechanism to triage that information and help us kind of come back to a state of peace. But I think it's part of what's being asked of us as modern humans is now that we are aware of all the suffering, how do we show up in service? How do we focus our energy and make the biggest, most specific impact that we're here to make? 
That's a question I grapple with every day. Yeah. <laughs> you do so, a good job with it. Thanks. <laughs> so, I mean, we've talked about COVID. We've talked about technology. Have humans in our societies always been depressed and anxious? Or is there something else that's also exacerbating everything? Like, I know you touched slightly on processed foods and things like that. But have we always been depressed and anxious? And now we're just highlighting it because of the mental health um, acknowledgement and revolution. Dan, I love that question. And I'll give you an answer about as confident as my definition of anxiety. I don't know. I think that, you know, our, our, our stats would tell us that in certain ways we're more depressed. I think in other ways we're screening, we're defining things differently over time. When, if a society is at a phase where there's more things like infant mortality, more domestic abuse, like whether or not our screening or the mental health infrastructure picks up on rates of depression or anxiety, I'm convinced that causes immense human suffering. We're in a moment right now where, you know, in the West, we have some semblance of safety, but we also have misery and it's confusing. And I am of the belief that I actually do believe, and I don't mean to romanticize the past. There were so many problems in the past and some things are getting better over time. But I think that the machinery of our brains, it's an organ, it's a piece of flesh like anything else. And it's susceptible to the ways our physical body gets out of balance. And I think in 2022, we're actually quite physiologically deranged and and I think that that is contributing to an increase in mental health issues. I think we're more inflamed. I think even though we're well-fed and often overfed, we're undernourished. We're, we're sort of in this metabolic derangement related to endocrine disruptors and processed foods, um, especially our hyperpalatable processed foods that create metabolic syndrome. And we're not sleeping and we have all of this blue spectrum light exposure after sunset. So our circadian rhythm is jacked up and our melatonin is suppressed. And, um, and I think like we're in a chemical stew, you know, from our prescriptions and to our tap water where I think we are really physiologically out of balance. And I think we are less happy and calm as a result of that. Yeah. I completely agree. I actually, I was reading this book the other day. I think it was Utopia for Realists. And he said that, I don't, I'm not sure if this was cited or this was just like an observation someone made, but um, the average American is now more anxious than someone was in an inpatient psychiatric unit in the 1930s. Yeah, that sounds about right. Makes sense. There is also a cultural moment we're in right now where anxiety is like, subjectively how we're describing our suffering and our struggles. Like that's the, that's the tone of this age and this moment is anxiety. And I describe it like that's the pH of the stew that we're in. And so, you know, in the past, someone might've described ennui or they might've described melancholy. Like right now, when we're struggling and suffering, we call that anxiety. The, it's anxiety is the pH of the stew. I like that. And so, <laughs> I mean, just to build on that. So what's the role as a psychiatrist now when the problems aren't just, you know, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia within the clinic? It's now an everybody problem and it's everywhere. What's the role of a psychiatrist? Mm. 
I can speak to that, but I also can speak to like, what's the role of when you can't get in to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that for all of us, when we're thinking about mental health, I think where, where our field is at right now, the current consensus is we acknowledge the genetic chemical imbalance, kind of monoamine hypothesis of things like depression. Um, we acknowledge things like cognitive distortions and behaviors, and then we acknowledge adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and how all of that contributes to mental health issues. And that's what guides our treatment. I think all of that is valid and can be helpful. We keep that. We're not, I'm not here to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we need to build upon that because we're missing two major areas that impact our mental health. One is our physical health. We cannot keep overlooking this. Inflammation, micronutrient deficiencies, chronic sleep deprivation, improper breathing, um, the impact of technology on our circadian rhythm, the ways that our hormones are out of balance, um, even our sensitivity to substances like caffeine and alcohol and processed foods and dietary intolerances, and then the impact on gut health. All of that is a very primary determinant of our mental health and psychiatrists should be focusing on it. And if you can't get in to see a psychiatrist, then there's a lot here that are safe, accessible interventions that we can do for ourselves. There is no need for gatekeeping because decreasing your inflammatory sources in your diet is not something like we don't need to gatekeep that. That's safe. It has side benefits, not side effects. And then there's this other category that impacts our mental health, which is what I call our psycho-spiritual needs, our fundamental human needs for things like community, connection, um, purpose, and meaning in our lives. And I think also for nature. And this was not really in my training. Amanda, I'm curious, like Dan, if this comes up in your guys' training, but I, I don't know. I mean, medical establishment is somewhat squeamish about things like meaning and purpose and spirituality, but I've realized I've been doing my patients a disservice by avoiding that topic. And I'm not here to proselytize. I don't have any horse in this race. I'm on my own journey of seeking and figuring out what feels true to me. But I'm here to at least give my patients permission to be seeking, permission to ask the bigger questions and just keep that in perspective as we go through our myopic lives focused on the day-to-day to also stand in a, in a stance of wonder at what it is to exist. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder when talking about like a lot of these issues are diseases of despair. And I'm wondering if just like the hope and optimism and purpose that we all used to have as a society. I wonder if that had blanketed a lot of the anxiety and depression. And now that we feel like we don't have that, maybe that's why everything's being uncovered now. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, what you bring up about despair, I mean, this is really tough because part of how I conclude my book about anxiety is, is to sort of with a reflection on, I think that the quote I put for this chapter is, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. And the idea of that balance between you show up, you do your reasonable best to keep yourself safe. And then you also on some level surrender and remain unattached and and sort of let go and trust the unfolding of the events in our lives. And that was a worldview I really felt gave me some comfort and meaning and resilience as I faced challenges in my life. Um, And it, it does leave me feeling less anxious and less um, like freaked out by the lack of certainty and control in our lives is to sort of release and hand over and surrender and trust the process. But I think like, you know, we're, we're, we're recording this a day after a horrifically tragic school shooting. And I do find myself 
also dabbling with despair and feeling like maybe there's nothing to trust in the unfolding. And I, I toggle between the two. And I think that's, that's all of our right is to be in that ambivalence as humans. But I do think that for anybody suffering with anxiety, it's at least worth grappling with questions of, is there a way that I can let go, trust, surrender? Thank you for um, sharing that, because I think that there is, even if we sleep well, eat well, try to do all the things to prevent anxiety, there will always be anxiety that creeps in or despair that creeps in. And that's just um, human nature. So even if you're trying to do everything right, it's okay, like you said, to let go a little bit. And sometimes you'll feel that. But um, anxiety in, in general can be uh, preventable, like you say, in your in your book. And going back a little bit to uh, what you were talking about in a couple of questions ago, you said that so as psychiatrists, you also have to focus on the physical. And I think it's an interesting, um, Daniel says the pendulum swings a too far one way sometimes. And we were always so focused on just the physical and we were like not even thinking about the mind. Now that mental health is the big conversation, we're only thinking about mental health a lot of the times and not about also the physical, but mind-body connection. It has to be <laughs> an interplay of both. So I was wondering um, some of the safe inter interventions that you mentioned. Um, do you mind running through a couple of those that people can do who are listening who, like you said, don't have access to a psychiatrist or maybe even someone who's like a holistic practitioner looking at the mind and body connection? Totally. Yeah. And yeah, that's just it. I feel like the, the error of our ways is in Western medicine, how we think of the body as separated into these discrete organs that don't talk to each other. And there's a line in my book that's like, well, your gut and your brain are talking to each other, even if you're a psychiatrist and your gastroenterologist are not. <laughs> and it's all interconnected. And Eastern traditions have always known this. They've known this for thousands of years. They've appreciated the interconnectedness. There's a delicate web of how it all communicates with each other. So there is no mind-body separation. Body affects the mind. Mind affects the body. It's one and the same. Um, we somehow keep having to oscillate between the two <laughs> in the West. And it's like, not it's not that either. It's like, we need to take it all into account. So in my book, the framing is that there's two types of anxiety, false anxiety and true anxiety, where false anxiety is the anxiety based in the physical body caused by some state of physical imbalance that usually trips our body into a stress response that tracks up to the brain and creates a mood state, can create anxiety, can create panic but it has a straightforward physical cause. I don't call it false to invalidate the very real suffering. I was in a state of false depression when I was in college and med school. That was life-altering levels of suffering. It's just that it had a straightforward physical balance and, or a straightforward physical cause. In my case, it was birth control pill and gluten that I didn't tolerate. And so there's a straightforward path out of false anxiety. And so I think of it as avoidable anxiety, whereas true anxiety is not something to pathologize. It's not something that we could gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. It's purposeful anxiety. It's our inner compass nudging us to acknowledge where we need a course correction in our lives, in our communities, in the world at large. So to actually finally answer your question, false anxiety, that's the low hanging fruit. And that's where all the actionable kind of Mr. Fix it attitude comes in. So um, we can address it through gut healing, 
um, through making sure that we have a healthy gut with a diverse ecosystem of beneficial bacteria. Certain bacteroides species help us manufacture GABA, our neurotransmitter that can pull us out of an anxiety spiral. And when our gut is healthy and not inflamed and our gut lining is healthy, we're less inflamed overall in our bodies. And inflammation itself is a very important focus when it comes to the physical support for anxiety. Because basically a competing theory with this monoamine hypothesis of depression is the cytokine or inflammatory hypothesis of depression. Understanding that an inflamed body means an inflamed brain means symptoms. And it's, it's actually the evolutionary precedent for being inflamed is that it's an adaptive response to feel like crap and to want to go rest in the dark in your cave until you feel better. That's an adaptive response to inflammation on the proverbial savanna of evolution. But the trouble with modern life is that we're in a chronic low-grade state of inflammation because of our processed foods and pollution and all of these exposures. And that leaves us in a chronic low-grade state of depression. And it's avoidable by being less inflamed. So decreasing inflammatory sources like foods we don't tolerate, man-made fats like our industrially processed seed and vegetable oils, and then really healing the gut and then calibrating the nervous system, healthy vitamin D levels, diverse ecosystem of beneficial bacteria, just making sure that we're not overreacting to benign stimuli, attacking our own self-tissue or underreacting to genuine pathogens. And then there's everything with food. And this is a really big factor, but it's at this point, the stuff of tribal warfare on the internet. It's such a fraught conversation. And I think the ask with food is that we need to nourish our bodies because our brain requires certain raw materials to function properly. We need vitamins, minerals, nutrients just to function, to have good mental health. There's no way around this. And having a diet of nutritionally bankrupt processed foods is not going to leave you with good mental health because you're just not giving your brain the raw materials it needs. And that's, that's just a truth we need to acknowledge as a culture. But then we need to nourish ourselves while not inflaming our brains or our bodies and doing it from a place of ease and pleasure and convenience and affordability, not from a place of obsessiveness or feeling like we're fragile or fearing food. And so that's a really delicate balance to strike. I have the utmost sympathy for everyone struggling to find that balance. Um, but I do think that that's a very important focus when it comes to supporting our mental health through the physical. There's more to be said about how do you support sleep and limits around phone and caffeine, alcohol, we can get into whenever you think is interesting. Well, people have to buy the book for that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't like the culture wars around food at all. It's like it, we make it so complicated and people just get exhausted by choice and by opinion. And it's like, just eat normal food that feels good to you and get rid of the BS and you'll probably feel a lot better. And then down the road, you can dive more into the nuances of the different foods. And unfortunately, well, the, the, the advertising or the food companies know how to advertise too. So they can say natural when it's like overly processed. So I, I really do like just the eating whole foods limiting processed and that's my baseline. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the compass I use in my own life and for my patients is generally err on the side of eating real food, generally err on the side of avoiding fake food and 
build in a little bit of wiggle room because you'll need it when we travel, when we have a friend's birthday dinner at a restaurant, whatever it is. But overall, that's a really good framing because then you can tap into your body's intuitive yearnings. And if your body says, I'm really craving this juicy steak or these mashed potatoes or this pizza, you can just ask yourself, is it a real food? If it's a juicy steak or a mashed potato that you're craving, that's real food. So go forth. Your body's telling you it has a need. And if it's craving a drug-like food, any combination of gluten, dairy, sugar, or processed foods with their flavor crystals, that's probably a drug craving and not a genuine yearning. So when my body's like, you know what I really need tonight is pizza, <laughs> I now know to identify that as a drug craving. And it, it usually means I'm yearning for connection. I'm yearning for grounding. Um, it kind of tracks back to like the original source of this, which is nursing. It's like your baby and you want nutrition, yes, but also comfort and the opiates of breast milk and to feel safe and to feel loved in your caretaker's arms. And I think that um, sometimes that's what we really need. But I agree with you, Daniel. I don't like the food fights and I'm very non-confrontational, but it <laughs> makes me take a step back and and to really say, well, like I think the reason we're all in this war with each other is actually... Like, I think that cultures that don't have a huge food industry and haven't sort of sold out to the highest bidder, um, they don't have the same level of fraught attitudes about how to eat. And I think I really blame the processed food industry. I think it has created a system where people um, sort of rebel in two different directions. Some people take control and are like, that food makes me sick or makes me addicted. So now I'm going to be super controlling and I'm not going to eat any of that. I'm going to be a super duper snowflake. I'm in that camp. And I'm only in that camp because that food made me sick. And then other people are like, that's toxic diet culture. And that's, you know, handing it over to the patriarchal pressures and the male gaze and keeping yourself small and restricting yourself. And so then they rebel in the other direction and eat like a teenager. And I don't think that that's necessarily serving that camp all that well either, because then they come to me and they're like, I eat whatever I want because I'm not going to do toxic diet culture. And I have polycystic ovary syndrome and endometriosis and I don't poop. And I'm like, it's because what we eat affects our health, which affects how we feel. And so that's why this matters. But I think the whole reason that we struggle with this is that our food industry is poison. And really the people who are affected most by nutrition and dietary concerns are the people that would never debate about avocado, avocado oil versus olive oil. And like, you know, they wouldn't go into all that detail or the nuances of that. They just need vegetables. Like they just need <laughs> yeah. quality meat. Um, and one comment before you move on to your next question. It's also, I think what you were saying with community and connection, because we've all become so isolated that I think these diet wars are the same way that people are responding just on Instagram or Twitter in general, where everyone's just finding a camp because everyone's looking for a tribe and for connection yes. because we feel so lonely. <laughs> yes. I'm snapping to that. <laughs> it's a great point. Okay. So just to switch topics a little bit. So when we had you on the podcast before, um, that's over a year ago, it was called the future is healthy podcast. And we had switched right. recently to the nuance because we had realized that all conversations on podcasts and on Twitter and everything was just black and white. And so we wanted a space to be able to dive in a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, on that note, there's psychiatric medications. It's always black or white. And then you have, you know, instances like 
you know, school shootings or just whatever it may be. And you always hear people say, you know, psych meds are all good. And some people say they're all bad. Let's talk about the nuances of psychiatric medications. This is why we're friends. Guys. <laughs> and I remember, you know, we concluded our first episode. I made a statement about the future of health and I said something about personal responsibility and empowerment and recognizing that, you know, health is not locked away in the ivory tower of medicine, but it's something we can do for ourselves. I thought of that as such a hopeful and empowering message. And then when I put that quote on Instagram, I got completely taken down for it. And people pointed out that this is denying structural racism. And this is, um, you know, just sort of playing into all kinds of injustices. And so I, I had to really, you know, lick my wounds first and then like really reconsider and reflect and, and recognize how when we say personal responsibility, it sort of implies that bad circumstances um, are, are no excuse and that it's our fault when we're not well. And that's, of course, not ever what I mean. But I think that um, it just helps me to reframe and to understand, well, like what is actually affordable and accessible? What can we all attempt to do without a feeling of guilt if we're not perfectly solving our mental health through holistic strategies, but just as a, as a message of hope and empowerment that there are free and accessible things we can all do. The nuance around psych meds. I take a long time to get to your questions. So here's the thing with psych meds. Some people are helped by them. So that's great. Like I'm not in the business of being dogmatically in one tribe or another. I'm in the business of decreasing human suffering. And so when someone's helped by psych meds, count it as a victory. They don't need me. So like everything I'm about to say is not to make that person feel shame for taking meds. It's not to make them second guess their choice. It's not to make them make any difference, no changes. If they want to augment their meds with what we're about to talk about, that's great. But I'm in support of when someone is helped by meds. The trouble here is that millions of people are not sufficiently helped by psych meds. For some of them, meds have never been helpful. They've never found the right medication. For someone else, maybe it was initially helpful and then the effect waned. Um, someone else might have a burden of side effects. Someone else might have a contraindication and have to get off of it. Um, and then this is a whole separate conversation, but the challenges of, having, of tapering off of psych meds and how that's an unspoken sort of silent epidemic that we're not yet talking about enough. So I'm here to say, if you are the person who has not yet been adequately helped by psych meds, do not despair. There's other things that we can do. There are other paths up this mountain of healing our mental health. And just if that one path wasn't the right path for you, there's so many other things that we can do. And I want those folks to have hope. And I also think that, and this is the slightly more controversial view, when, when psych meds help, that's great. But for everyone else, I also want them to know it probably means their depression is not a Lexapro deficiency disorder. And that's okay, because here's the thing about depression. It's not just this fixed destiny um, diagnosis that's in your genes that you're stuck with. It's a combination of your genetic predispositions, your epigenetic impacts of what you've been through as a pile of DNA. And then it is also related to our environment. Depression is our body communicating something's not right here, maybe in the physical body, maybe in terms of our psycho-spiritual needs. And we can do some sleuthing, identify the imbalance that it's the, is at the root of someone's mental health issues and address it. And so I find that that's hopeful because we can't do a whole lot about our genes, but there's a lot that we can do about our environment. And so not to make anyone feel guilty for their environment or for their choices up to this point, not to deny the very 
real systemic factors that make this more or less accessible to different populations, but just to give us an understanding of here's what we can do within reason. And so I hope that that addresses the nuanced take on psych meds. And thanks for explaining the nuances of psychiatric meds. <laughs> we appreciate that. So what do you see for the future of psychiatric meds and, you know, and alternative therapies? Is there a day where we won't need any psychiatric meds? Will they always be, you know, just a, a counter to them if things don't work? Um, are there any treatments that you're overly optimistic about? Or do you hope we just like fix society and our world and our physiolo physiology catches up? Hmm. <laughs> um, hmm. Okay. Well, like a pie in the sky approach to that. I think that, I mean, I think that there's probably always going to be a role for psych meds. I, I certainly think about conditions like schizophrenia. It's almost like the opportunity for a holistic approach is probably behind us, probably in, in utero and earlier childhood. And I think that, you know, thank goodness for meds to manage symptoms and, and allow some people to be more functional in their lives, less, less suffering. I think there's also this other tricky thing with meds, and this is like one hair more controversial of a view, but I think a lot of them create a lot of physiologic dependence, which is sort of a euphemism for habit forming, which is itself a euphemism for addictive. They're not addictive in a traditional sense of they make you high. It's not like that. It's more just that they make you low in withdrawal and then needing to go back to it. And so because of that, I feel like we have a lot of, like we will never run out of customers for psych meds because a lot of people are physiologically dependent. And I know that this, this is not going to land super well. I know. And I understand. And I really want to validate, like, this is not to stigmatize taking meds. Um, I still prescribe meds. I put patients on meds, but I do just want us to have the full nuanced conversation about it, that some people go on an SSRI, get off and they feel fine. And other people go off an SSRI and feel fine for two weeks or two months. And then it's often around two months after tapering or after discontinuation that someone suddenly feels really dark, really bad, irritable, can't sleep, depressed, crying, emotionally labile, volatile, um, sometimes suicidal. And the tricky thing about that timescale is that that's not the way humans think about cause and effect. So we don't think to attribute that to withdrawal. And if anything, we call it relapse, but that's not relapse. That is psychiatric medication withdrawal. And it's really common, but people, I think it's like this silent epidemic. And I think people suffer in silence and in shame and don't realize that that's withdrawal. And we do not have the infrastructure right now in place. We don't have practitioners who are trained to support healthy, sustainable tapering, titration off of meds. You see it. It's like wild, wild rest stuff there. For the most part, practitioners will just say, I'm not in support of you getting off your meds. And if they do support it, they're like, eh, maybe you should just like cut it in half for two weeks and then go off. And that is a wholly irresponsible way to approach medication titration. It should be approached slowly, about 10% reduction per month, working with a compounding pharmacy, taking about a year to get off of a med. And we need that informed consent up front when we're prescribing these medications in the first place. So I put patients on meds from time to time, but we have that conversation. So they know what they're getting themselves in for. We talk about the efficacy. We talk about the titration off process. To actually answer your question, once again, <laughs> I think that um, I am a little bit optimistic about the role of psychedelics. 
I don't think that it's a silver bullet. I don't think that it's like an easy solution, but I think it's a nice, exciting new approach to treatment in that on the one hand, it works in some familiar ways, like they're anti-inflammatory and they are active on our serotonergic receptors, like the 5-HT2A receptor, and they promote BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So they make us more neuroplastic and promote neurogenesis, and that's all great. They also quiet our default mode network. So we have a little bit of a respite from that limited sense of ourselves as a separate individual and a little bit more access to feeling interconnected with all sentient beings, with the world at large. And I think that's good for humanity. But I also think that what's most exciting to me about why psychedelics are so promising as as new agents of mental health treatment is the mystical experience hypothesis, which is that the more peak a mystical experience you have in a psychedelic ceremony the more enduring, like the more efficacy, the more enduring the antidepressant and anti-anxiety effect. And that's interesting. That's really different than our current psych meds. That's here to say, I heard it once described as reverse PTSD. It's almost like to have an experience of interconnectedness and awe at the universe is therapeutic and it's expansive and it helps us reconfigure our priorities. And so I really, I am optimistic about psychedelics and they're definitely not for everyone. They truly are not. That's not just like a CYA, um, like avoiding medical liability. I think that um, there are brains for which, brains that are already chaotic and you don't really want to introduce new chaos to those brains, but there are brains that are stuck and rigid and entrenched in patterns that are maladaptive And for those folks, shaking up the snow globe and letting things fall a little bit differently can be really therapeutic. Wow. Thank you again for addressing the nuance of psychedelics. Um, And I think it's really important to highlight what you were saying about like the mystical experience and the interconnection. And usually all of these psychedelics have been used in ceremonies in the past. And that was the traditional use. So I think that a lot of people are excited by psychedelics, but that's all they hear. And so some people might try to use it by themselves and not with a like practitioner or even in ceremony. So I think that as psychedelics become more and more popular, which they are, there has to be a lot more conversation about how should they be used so that they're actually beneficial and not just detrimental. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. And community is not only part of what mm, keeps it safe, but also is part of the treatment, mm-hmm. like to, to shift consciousness in ga- while gathering in community and having that as a shared, really reverent experience, I think is really, it's an important part of why they're helpful. Yeah. And it would be so great if people felt a little bit more connected to each other and to the environment that <laughs> could help a lot of things. You know, it just occurred to me what we were saying earlier about like, we're trying to pick our tribe. I I wonder if part of the reason we are so polarized right now is because we are so starved for connection and in, it's sort of the way gossip is bonding. And in that sense, like being polarized is kind of bonding because you feel automatically bonded to the people in your vertex and your tribe. And it's sort of bonding at the price of overall like treating everyone with humanity and respect. And so I'm not sure it's really the definitive solution, but perhaps it speaks to our craving for connection that we're getting there through 
um, being polarized and separated from some in order to be really bonded to others. Um, I also really appreciate you addressing that when you said it might be a hair controversial about SSRIs or about psychiatric medications in general, that there can be a withdrawal from it um, within two months. Is that specifically because of like the half-life of some of these drugs and they leave the system fully by two months? I think it's not a half-life phenomenon, mm. although some people would say if you're tapering, you know, cross-type trait over to Prozac or fluoxetine, which has the longer half-life and then it's an easier withdrawal. But I think that half-life is more on the order of hours, days, not weeks. And I think that the weeks, like the two-month phenomenon, I think that's related to the same thing that when we say, you know, this might take six to eight weeks to work, I think it might also take six to eight weeks to um, sort of reconfigure your brain off. So to sort of, to stop working. And so it's almost like the way our serotonergic receptors and the uptake and all of that, I think that that reconfigures when we go on a med and we go off a med. And that seems to be about a two month process at least. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you see subacute withdrawal states happening even much later. Interesting. Cause I, I mean, I always, I always think that the body and the mind is so smart and we try to stay in homeostasis. So if you introduce a drug like an SSRI, then you're going to downregulate some receptor. So you're actually changing the structure of your brain. So when you do come off that medication, your, your brain structure may have really actually changed. And that's not something that is necessarily talked about a lot. Yes. And what I come across a lot is someone will tell me, Lexapro saved my life. And I always want to know more. And usually the story that I uncover is that someone was struggling at some point in their life. They go on Lexapro. Did it work? Kind of like they felt some improvement. They felt some narrowing of the range of their emotions. And that was helpful. They went from crying every day to not crying every day. And that's a, that's a benefit. And then, you know, they feel better. It's a couple of years later, they decide to go off. They go off without any enlightenment or support from practitioners. And so they go off cold Turkey or through a very rapid taper and then, you know, within about two months, they are thrown into a really dark state and then they resume the Lexapro and they feel instantly so much better because there's nothing like the antidote to a withdrawal to like really create instant and massive relief. And so I think the problem here is that we're never identifying what that was, which was Lexapro withdrawal. And Lexapro wasn't this effective antidepressant in that moment. It was this effective savior from its own withdrawal. And so that's where, like, I just want us, I mean, this is, it's controversial, but like, I'm just loyal to the truth, which is like, I want us to really discern what's happening in that moment. doesn't mean Lexapro doesn't help people. Like even the people like who fit this anecdote, they were initially helped but then they are starting to give Lexapro credit for solving a problem that it solved. It's the same way like coffee feels like our savior every morning. Well, it's saving us from caffeine withdrawal. <laughs> it's a problem it solved and we're giving it credit for that. And so we just need to be clear on that. But most importantly, I want people to realize that, you know, two, three months after getting off of a med, when they start to feel dark, that's not relapse. That is withdrawal. Mm. Wow. And and one quick thing that I wanted to mention, which I thought was super interesting that I learned the other day, because um, like you were saying with like psychiatric medications, schizophrenia, like you see immediate relief when someone is in acute psychosis and you treat them. They actually had a study where they could tell the difference between patients with schizophrenia and patients without schizophrenia when looking at their gut microbiome. 
and they were completely blinded, which I think is fascinating. I just think that mental health research and what we're going to find in the future, like with psychedelics and stuff is just so fascinating. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, gut health, it's, it, the primacy of that to our mental health cannot be overstated. And I think culturally we're at a moment right now where we appreciate that our brain impacts our gut. Like we're having that conversation. We're like, oh, I know my stress levels are causing my IBS. So we understand top-down communication, but the part we're not yet talking about is bottom-up communication, that the state of the gut is informing the state of the brain via the vagus nerve for the most part, but also cytokines and circulation in the bloodstream. But basically when our gut is off, whether we have a decimated gut flora or we're inflamed or there's intestinal permeability, this is sending a communication up to the brain telling us to feel uneasy and unwell. And that's an easier entry point to solving mental health issues than seven years of psychotherapy. And so, you know, a little focused, dedicated gut healing can really go a long way. And most of us need it in modern life because modern life makes a broad assault on the health of our gut. It is amazing that the research is coming around and the acceptance of the, the gut brain connection when we've all as kids or even throughout our life, we feel that immediate pit in our stomach when we feel anxious, nervous excited, whatever, the butterflies in our stomach. And that was clearly like a psychological or an issue like that. And we felt it immediately. I have so many patients who are like, I'm so anxious, it's affecting my stomach. And I sometimes am like, or is your stomach affecting your anxiety? Like, is this actually food poisoning? (laughs) Did you eat something you don't tolerate? And, you know, I mean, it's sometimes difficult to discern which came first, but we at least need to be just asking the chicken or the egg question. Sometimes it's gut first. And for our listeners today that have enjoyed this conversation with you, um, how do you recommend that they follow you and keep up with you and learn more about you? Um, just like the way you asked that, like if anybody enjoyed this, some people are like, <laughs> waving their fist in the air being like, what the hell? That was a earload of a very, you know, like views that are not necessarily widely shared. But we shared, really but, appreciate it. Yeah, um, we love it because, you know, a lot of times like as scientists, doctors, researchers, whatever, we, we really only hypothesize when it's way, when the research has way been concluded. So we love to just have conversations and talk about things that may or may not be true. It's just the nuances. So we love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's exploratory. It's, you know, I think that the science catches up and will support some of this and debunk some of it. And, but I, I feel like I get so much value from listening to people in this field reflect on, like, we're basically various mechanics of the human body. And, you know, someone brings in their car and they're like, it's not running. And I like the idea of a bunch of mechanics standing around and be like, oh, is it the carburetor? Is mm-hmm. it the, <laughs> like, I think that there's value in just having us reflect on what could be going wrong. Um, in the machinery of the human body and brain. So um, my book is definitely the best resource. It's the distillation of really everything I've been reflecting on and observing in my practice for the last 10 years. It's called The Anatomy of Anxiety. And then I'm fairly active on Instagram at Ellen Vora MD. And I'm like not that active and pretty embarrassingly pathetic on TikTok, but it's also Ellen Vora MD. (laughs) (laughs) And I love what you just said too. First of all, I also recommend the book. I really enjoyed it. And I love what you were saying, the distillation of everything that you've seen in the clinic. I have been very focused on social medicine recently, how societal environmental factors play into people's health. 
and I concurrently got my MPH along with my MD. And so I, <laughs> um, and so she's I've been doing really, the most. <laughs> she's doing the most. <laughs> I've been really focused. It's so awesome. We need you in this world. Keep doing the most. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we, I've been really focused on public health and sometimes get very like frustrated by people coming into the clinic. And I feel like all of, a lot of their symptoms are, um, from societal issues, from racism, from housing insecurity, from food insecurity. And so I've always been like, well, should I mostly shift to public health? And something that one of my friends said the other day, um, Jonas, he was recently on the podcast and he is a psychiatry resident actually in Minnesota. And he's also interested in social medicine, but he said, don't let people take away your power in the clinic because your observations of the human condition on one-on-one interactions is so important. And even if we don't have all of the randomized control studies, like the knowledge and wisdom that you've shared with us today is so important because you've had these connections and relationships with these patients and you've seen it with your own eyes. And I think that's that's super important and something that I, I will like cherish moving forward in my training. Oh, I know we're like wrapping up, but I have to reflect on what you just said. And, and it's like, well, on the one hand, um, we all value evidence-based medicine, right? We do. Although we also, I don't know, I'm skeptical of it as well because it's, it's corrupted at this point. And, you know, what gets studied, what gets funded, what gets published, systemically correct at this point. And so, you know, we, you have to, you have, to have a, a skeptical look at, at the evidence basis, but the spirit behind it is beautiful. What is the truth? And while a large randomized clinical control trial or a meta-analysis is a really good um, distillation of the truth, it is not the only form of evidence. And anecdotal evidence is still evidence. It's an N of one. You know, it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the generalizability or whether this is applicable to somebody else. But when you have a patient sitting across from you and they're saying, well, this is my lived experience. I just wish we weren't trained so subtly to bully that out of people and gaslight them. I think that that happens in our medical training. We, we say, well, there's no evidence for that, or, or that's not what my textbook said. And how about we start from the place of this is truth and maybe my textbook was wrong. And so I think that there's just something so beautiful about, yes, we, I, I think it's so important to stay in the clinic and keep your finger on the pulse, as it were, of how humans are, are suffering. And it evolves over time. Um, like the pH of our moment right now is anxiety, and it'll be different in 10 years, I should hope. And I think there's also just something to be said here about, like, you guys are staying so aware of the social pressures that all of these different marginalized populations are being affected by. And my approach to mental health I think appears at first glance as a very privileged and ableist approach. And I'm really here to achieve quite the opposite. I think that what's happening right now is that accessibility, affordability, and mental health care is at an all-time high. It's really bad. And, um, and then even once somebody accesses mental health care, I'm not so sure it meets their needs appropriately. I like to offer up things that are safe affordable, accessible, often free that we can do for ourselves so that there's no gatekeeping. There's no issues of access to mental health care. We can start today. We can do a breathing exercise right now. We can go to bed earlier tonight. We can um, get a bag of frozen vegetables and some dried rice and cook that. 
And there's just ways to make this affordable and accessible. And it, it's, this doesn't have to be, um, we don't have to think of mental health as something that's difficult to access. It can start in our own homes today for ourselves, doing things that are safe and non-invasive. And lastly, we ask everybody to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Well, this time I'm not going to gaff about personal responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really hope that the future is where we realize that we're connected, that everyone's suffering matters to all of us and to, to just to show up with our full humanity for every single sentient being. I hope. Well, Dr. Vora, thank you so much for coming back and chatting with us again. We'll, we'll stay in touch and I recommend your book to everyone. Um, and I do hope that the pH of society changes um, for the better away from anxiety. And can I just say congratulations to you guys for graduating from med school, heading off to residency and just bringing so much light to this profession. And you're both going to make such incredible contributions and impacts on your patients' lives. I'm so happy to know that you're in medicine. Thank you. Thank you so much. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the nuance in medicine explained and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified board-certified practicing clinician.